What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the GameStop postmortem. The SEC has finally released its findings on meme madness. We're breaking down the details. When you start talking about the creativity of the financial markets, most of the time that doesn't lead to great things. Higher prices hit the household aisle. Procter and Gamble's incoming CEO. I'd say there's still a ways to go for the market forces to work and equalize the supply and demand situation in, in different parts of the world. So we're not through it. And traditional cable networks are not the walking dead fighting the streaming wars and zombies with AMC Network's Matt Blank. We can't compete on a cost basis with Netflix or HBO Max or Prime. So we'll continue to do our thing. And, you know, you never know where the next great hit is going to come from. And speaking of big hits, we're still talking about Squid Game. Have you watched yet? The last half hour is just people moving forward and just getting... Don't worry, no spoilers. It's Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. First up today on the pod, the SEC is out with a much-anticipated report on the GameStop saga. In January of this year, the stock of the gaming retailer rallied more than 2,700%. The surge shone a light on the community of new individual traders sharing memes and tips on Reddit message boards. And the stock's startling rise appeared to be an effort by little guy investors to stick it to hedge funds that had shorted the stock. In this hotly anticipated report, Wall Street's main regulator said online brokerages are turning stock trading into a game to encourage activity from retail investors in order to increase revenue through payment for order flow. To motivate trading, some brokers, like Robinhood, made their platforms visually enticing and had game-like features, points, rewards, leaderboards, and bonuses. Amid criticism, Robinhood got rid of its confetti animation in March. Squawk Box anchors Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin discussed this SEC report today. Andrew kicks things off. The SEC report did not lay blame for the meme stock mania on a single cause or entity. I don't know if you guys read through it. It was about 35 pages, and I was disappointed. Why? I was disappointed. Well, or maybe I was happily surprised. But all of the conjecture... Those are opposites. Totally. All of the conjecture by the folks on Reddit and on Twitter about the role that Citadel played in, in, in somehow, you know, killing the shorts and forcing games, uh, Robinhood to do this and that and Melvin Capital this and that and all of the this and that's were, were not even touched upon by this report. And I think the implication is they weren't touched upon in this report because they were not true. So I was, I was disappointed because the report didn't even... It didn't even seem to try to explain any of this except to just say, this is how it is. The good news, by the way, was they did explain one thing that I thought was actually very important because there's a complete um, misunderstanding in the world. If you remember, there was 
140% uh, short interest in GameStop. And the Reddit folks sat there and said, this can't be right. This is uh, manipulation. How could this possibly be? And effectively, the SEC said, this is exactly how it could be. It's completely normal. This makes 100% sense. Let's explain it to you. So there were things in it that, to me, gave some... When you look at the way options worked and how you get to that 140% number, you can see it. And, and But the, you know, just on face value, that gives people a big... I, I know, but, the, but I would but have then, thought... But then the other thing, this is not going to stop the conjecture that, that, oh, they didn't find anything. So this is going to be a big... They're going to just call that a cover-up, the wackos that are sure that... The wackos that are sure that, that, that all my friends run hedge funds. I mean, I know a couple of those guys, you know, casually... Right. But they've never told me to do it. I mean, we're not. It's ridiculous to say that any of us are, are, are in the. Now, I'm, I like corporate America. Am I in the pocket of corporate? Yeah, I prefer it to the public sector. OK, so in that respect, you will hear a defense of capitalism from me. But nobody individually has said, here's some stock. Right. Say something good. It's just BS. And same with our higher ups here. No one's ever told me to say anything. They told me some things not to say. <laughs> but those are... Well, um, and you, too. I mean, uh, well, I get it on both sides. I you know you do. But I'm, you either, got that... I'm either a communist on one day or, or you know, a, a Wall Street lover on the I other. Remember, so it's very I mean, complicated. The, the, I think it was the Carters. There's a picture with John Wayne Casey. OK, they were not the President Carter and Rosalind Carter were not friends with John Wayne Gacy. However, there was a picture of them where some, and that happens to, to us all the yes. time. Too. So getting a picture, you know, the one that really was toxic was uh, our, our buddy Epstein. He had pictures with everybody, and you know, suddenly and he they showed it, them off and used yeah, to use it as a currency. And, but it doesn't mean, you know, if you have a picture with the head, I don't guy, have a picture with Epstein. I've never met <laughs> I'm them. I'm not talking. I don't either. I don't either. I don't. I don't have, I don't have them either. We're going to move on. I think I'm a little too old to have a picture with him. <laughs> Um, good okay, one. here we go. Good one. Um, let's talk uh, about what's going on on the West Coast this morning, and that is uh, ARK Invest Kathy Wood. She spoke yesterday at the Milken Conference. She weighed in on the gamification of trading. I know a lot of people are concerned about the gamification uh, that the Robin Hoods of the world represent, uh, but I'm not worried at all about that. I think what happened during the after the tech and telecom bust and the 0809 meltdown the fear and risk aversion that, uh, that permeated the markets uh, took the joy out of the markets and took the creativity and the imagination. Now it's coming back, and I really think it's starting with the millennials. They are excited. Laugh when they heard that comment. They took the creativity out of the market. Yeah, like CDOs and making sure you can find new ways to kind of come up with different things. Like, it just when you start talking about the creativity of the final financial markets, most of the time that doesn't lead to great things. Some fallout from the covid vaccine mandates. Washington State University has fired head football coach Nick Rolovich and four of his assistants after they refused to comply with a state covid vaccine mandate. Rolovich was the highest paid state employee with an annual salary of more than three million dollars. He had said he would not get vaccinated, but had declined for weeks when repeatedly asked to explain why. The university said he would be fired for cause because he's unable to meet the requirements outlined in his contract. 
In the meantime, ESPN reporter Allison Williams is leaving the network after refusing to comply with parent company Disney's vaccine requirement. She said she decided not to get a COVID vaccine while she and her husband were trying to have a second child. She also said she was not ethically and morally aligned with the vaccine mandate. Um, but guys, you are starting to see cases uh, or instances where, where people would rather leave their job than get the vaccines that have been required at this point. We had yesterday the conversation um, with New Hampshire's governor, uh, Mr. Sununu, where he talked about, look, if, if you're truly a Republican, if a public company or if a private company chooses to do this, that is their choice. And I guess some of the questions come back to what the government's requiring and what not. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen people say, well, you know, we're, we're trying to work on employment issues and, you, you know, firing people doesn't help the, the employment situation. I was surprised that Sununu was so when I asked him matter of fact, he goes, yeah, fire. They're done. I'm trying to figure out. So if a company decides to, to mandate it and then if you don't uh, get one, you get fired. Is, did you say that, that, that that's a company's choice or that's yes. that? It is. That is okay. the company's choice, whether you're Fred's Flower Shop or a major hospital association. Businesses have always had that. If a business wants to say you have to get vaccinated to work in my business, that's their choice. It always has been. Those rules have not changed and should not change. You read about uh, a lot of uh, like government groups of government employees that are pushing back, policemen, right. whatever it is. I keep reading a difference, usually in the New York Post, uh, something like that. There's, there's some carve-outs that the Biden administration gave to certain government entities, right? Which was post weird. Office, which was weird. One, yeah, and, and other and unions. And there's right? been some others. It's like union. It's to not. I don't. How I don't, do you read it? I, I think part of that is negotiations with the union, where they say, "Okay, we have to do it," but but it does. It, it doesn't sit well when you're telling other people they have to require it and allowing exemptions in your own ranks. Um, but but look, if, if, if a company chooses to do this, and I can understand why some companies would, they want to make sure that they're protecting their employees. They want to make sure they're protecting customers. And by the way, there are some employees who want everyone around them to be vaccinated. So it's not just the anti-vaxxers who are there. I guess, you know, people that have had COVID that you know, that at this point say, look, I, I've had it. I think I got better immunity than you get from the vaccine. I could understand where they might. But that say, wasn't, for example, the ESPN reporters view. I'm not saying it's that. I think was what if someone did say that? Let's say that you had had it and really had like a robust immune response. Would you? Just, I think the science, the science says right now that that the vaccine will won't help hurt. You. It won't hurt you. I think we've seen we, we've now seen millions upon millions upon millions of people Hundreds take of it and get it. Um, Billions and, of people and, have gotten it at this point. And yeah. I don't think we're I, I don't understand the conversation about why, why not to take it. Well, if and you it, had and, COVID, you could understand. Well, but I well, but I, and I also look, my, this is my personal view. This idea of transmission. Yes. People say, well, the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission. The, the vaccine prevents lots of transmission. It doesn't just prevent all, all transmission. And right. So if you're trying to reduce the risk of the people around you potentially giving it to you or to others, you want them to be vaccinated. Well, that was the most, we talked about it again and again, that was the most disappointing thing that Gottlieb came on and said is that you're still shedding virus even when you're not sick and you're asymptomatic. I was like, the, was like well. That was a turning point, I think. That was like the worst Because thing. up to that point, right. I think we felt point, like, okay, thought, we got the vaccines, right. it's okay, you can go out there. Exactly. And that, that was, was a, a little bit of a showstopper. But I think it's true. It's usually, I think it'd be much less likely, but it's, it's much, so much, funny. much less likely. The chance that you can spread it, right. well, the chance that you will get infected and then spread it is significantly lower than if you don't have the vaccine. I, and by the I way, think, by the way, we're going to have a conversation very soon in this country, which we haven't even introduced about boosters 
which is to say that I think we're going to get to a point where employers are going to say, not only did you have to get the vaccine the first time, you're going to have to get boosted. Otherwise, you're not going to work. Well, the Biden administration, and I think it's going to get very interesting very quickly. The Biden administration, you saw, totally jumped the gun on that. Couldn't even get its federal agencies uh, right. to, back, to back them on it. So they're looking at it, and they're going to wait till they have stuff before they make it from Although, right now. It's Joe, still part 65 of that was a political. Part of that was a political discussion. It, it was what do we want these vaccines to do? Do you want to make sure people don't wind up in the hospital, or do you want right. to make sure that and, they're not transmitting before, it? And do you want to do it before other it people haven't? Right. And, right. and that's world, right. it's not just the science. It's what do we want of these things, and is it fair to take them first? And I think that needs to be brought up too. But once, but once, but once they are approved. Then it's going to be, and then businesses are going to make these these decisions about the boosters on this uh, probably on the same basis of let's reduce the risk to our own employees. You'd have to, you know, if the science says you got zero antibodies left, then maybe so. Next on Squawk Pod, Procter and Gamble reviews its latest quarter and Zoomers household staples. They want all these foo foo kale based, you know, small products. Are you going to keep buying those, or, or are you going to stick with Tide? We take it up with Vice Chairman and incoming CEO, John Moeller. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Procter & Gamble, the consumer products giant behind Crest, Pampers, Gillette Razors, and many other household staples, is raising prices on certain beauty and grooming products to offset increased cost of freight and materials. Inflation in the U.S. is seeing a decade high due to labor and commodity shortages and pandemic-related price increases. The Cincinnati, Ohio-based P&G reported quarterly earnings and revenue this morning that beat Wall Street's expectations, but the higher costs weighed on profits. Joe Kernan spoke to the company's soon-to-be CEO, John Moeller. People across the board have said you did a a great job in your in your previous roles uh, at at P&G. So it probably was not just coming on Squawk Box every every quarter that got you that uh, that that move. Uh, right. I mean, it's more than just that, I would say. You, you earned it. It played a part. But, <laughs> it played. but so, what's more uh, important is sustainably delivering results. And I'm joined in that effort by 100,000 plus colleagues. We just delivered our 13th consecutive quarter of volume, sales, consumption, and share growth. We grew our top line globally in nine out of our 10 categories. We held our built share in 36 of our 50 top category country combinations and built aggregate share about 50 basis points. We overcame significant uh, commodity and transportation costs with that strong top line and with our continued cost savings program. 
to deliver earnings per share about equal to last year, down 1%. Five billion dollars of cash returned to share owners, all in a in a very uh, difficult and volatile operating environment. Um, the results for the quarter, the strength and the breadth, then give us the confidence to confirm guidance for our fiscal year, which ends in June. Top line, bottom line, cash. The uh, we've talked about it the last few times you were on that you recently were able to be above plan in terms of organic uh, sales growth, and that happened again. It was four percent, but for the year. You're, you're moderating that a little, maybe not moderating, because I think you were, weren't, you were two to four previously, but did four, and now you're two to four again for, for your forecast, right? Is, will you be able to beat that, do you think, again, or, or do you think caution is warranted just with, with the, the state of the world? There's a lot of volatility around the world, whether that's in the supply chain, whether that's in the geopolitical environment. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're confident in the momentum of the business. Again, consumption continues to grow, which is very important. We just finished our first quarter of four, so keeping the guidance where it uh, started at two to four seems prudent for now. John, it would be nice if all you had to worry about was, uh, you know, taking market share. I know you're trying to, to introduce some, some price increases, and, and some analysts worry that it could mean a little bit bumpier uh, future in terms of implementing some of these price increases. But what I'm getting to is, is your second biggest market, and we talk about it a lot here, and that is China. And, and CEOs are faced with, with really trying to thread the needle there. We, we, we want to satisfy the Chinese consumer, the great people in China, but, but some people are uncomfortable with some of the moves we're seeing from, from the, the leadership there and the CCP, and, and maybe some of the future moves that could be downright hard to deal with as, you know, as to whether you want to be seen as enabling that regime. Do you have to think of that very much, John, or are you, you just thinking about, you know, store shelves, you know, keeping them full in a supply chain problem? We're thinking about serving consumers and doing it the right way. Uh, we've, we, that business for us has uh, doubled over the last 10 years. As you rightly mentioned, it's our second largest market in both sales and profits. The market was a little flat in the last quarter. We delivered uh, uh, top line in line with a year ago, but on a two-year stacked basis, uh, we delivered 12% growth, which is about in line with current market growth in our categories of about 6% uh, per annum. So again, we're going to continue focusing on serving consumers in a superior way around the world, doing it the right way. So would you say, John, just, just to... to Press the issue a little bit. Are, are you agnostic on, for lack of a better term, who you're in bed with in terms of, uh, you know, being, I mean, I look at the NBA, I look at Nike, I look at Starbucks. I, it's just someone pointed out that the Comcast has a theme park, Universal does. So it, it, you have to be there, but there are going to be some ramifications and things are going to be written. You also, uh, Procter & Gamble, have pointed out, help develop a technique uh, being tested in China to try to get around some iPhone uh, privacy uh, issues. I don't know if you want to comment on that, but then you've also um, developed your own uh, way to sort of monitor consumer behavior, and maybe you won't need to, uh, to do that anymore. But that was written about in, with sort of a, I don't know, kind of a negative tilt. Well, we aim to have a one-to-one -one relationship uh, with consumers around the world, where they choose to enter into that relationship, and in a manner and fashion that they choose to interact with us. That allows us to serve them um, optimally, efficiently, effectively uh, for them.
And so that's a, a, a desired outcome, again, when it's uh, welcomed by consumers. Do you also, John, think that, that things are going to loosen up in terms of, uh, of the supply chain and inflation is only transitory? Or are you, what are you factoring into your two- and three-year projections for, uh, for inflation? And, and will we expect any shelves to be downright bare again? Uh, I know Christmas could be a problem, maybe consumer goods a little bit less so. But are we on the other side of these disruptions at this point? I'd say there's still a ways to go for the, the market forces to work and, and uh, equalize the supply and demand situation in, in different parts of the world. So we're not through it. Uh, in the quarter we just completed, uh, despite delivering earnings uh, about equal to a year ago, we had about $600 million after tax and increased commodity and transportation costs that relate to those supply chain dynamics that you described. There's another side of the equation, though, which we're not talking a lot about, and that's what's driving that supply shortage, which is demand. And demand is very strong uh, on a global basis. Consumption in the U.S. Uh, continues to grow. Uh, markets growing globally uh, 3 to 4% at an even higher rate in the U.S. Uh, so as uh, the supply chain equalizes itself, that underlying uh, consumption and demand should leave to uh, very attractive operating conditions. So, Judge, just back to, to the way that you approach satisfying uh, consumers, um, th- there is a sort of a juxtaposition of, of privacy and having big data that allows you really to serve customers better. Uh, do you have a way of, uh, of walking that fine line as well? It, it, I guess you can do it with metadata where it's not actually you're not invading any individual's privacy. You're looking at, at large trends. But th- that's a big part of, of what Procter & Gamble is trying to do, is it not? We combine a number of different data sources. Uh, much of it's anonymized, as you describe. Uh, it does allow us to see underlying uh, trends in real time. And, uh, again, where consumers choose, uh, we'll have a one-on-one relationship with them, and they'll decide how much of their information they want to provide us to enable us to serve them better. And all of that gets combined into a, a really uh, world-class understanding of consumers around the world. John, do you, uh, do you have a view on where your taxes are headed? Not you, not John Moore. Yours are headed up because you're going to be CEO. But, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about uh, Procter & Gamble itself. Uh, it could be a global tax. Uh, minimum, it looks like there's, there's going to be one. could be higher uh, corporate taxes in, in this country. Is any of that... It's out of your control, I guess, unless you have lobbyists. But do you, do you have a problem with where we're headed? And then also comment on, you know, on rising interest rates and tapering and everything the Fed might be doing. All out of your control, but something you have to think about. Our biggest uh, desire from a tax standpoint is that American companies be fully competitive with their domestic and uh, multinational competitors, both here and abroad. And, and uh, we spend a fair amount of time explaining uh, the downsides of not being competitive on a global basis. If you look at our business, for example, roughly 60% of it is outside of the United States, but that business creates U.S. jobs. About 20% of our jobs in the United States support our international business. In Cincinnati, it's, it's even higher, at close to 40%. Uh, so it's very important that we – and most of our competitors, as you know – um, are domiciled outside the United States. There are companies like Unilever, like L'Oreal, like Henkel, like Cow, 
and uh, in a very competitive industry, it's important that we have a competitive tax rate. Okay. Uh, if I distill that down, do you, do you think it's a mistake to, to raise corporate taxes back to 25, 26 percent? Would that be something that would adversely affect your ability to, to hire or adversely affect your ability to, to satisfy shareholders and, and other stakeholders? It certainly affects the attractiveness of investment uh, in this country. Um, but the U.S. rate uh, presumably applies to all competitors, um, so is less concerning than, for example, um, an increase, a unilateral increase in the tax that we'd pay on overseas earnings uh, that would apply just to U.S. companies. But generally, um, I mean, look, ta tax is cash, and it affects uh, a lot of uh, decisions and confidence in investing in a market. Yep. You still, you're, you're still a, a big global brand guy, or you're like some of these niche, you know, I heard someone called a Zoomer. I think that was on the, did you see that on the morning? Yep. A Zoomer is like a Generation Z boomer or something. So, you know, they want all these foo-foo, kale-based, you know, small products. Are you going to keep buying those, or, or are you, you going to stick with Tide, things that we can trust because we know about it for uh, 180 years? Well, we focused our portfolio about four years ago into categories where primarily performance drives brand choice. That's certainly the case in laundry detergent. That's the case in baby diapers. And um, in those categories where daily use categories where performance drives brand choice, trust in the brand and its delivery against my needs are a significant factor in the purchase uh, decision. And over the course of the pandemic, We've actually seen a migration towards those large trusted brands. If I just look at private label market shares as, as a proxy for that, uh, they're down about um, uh, 80 points, or sorry, uh, 80 basis points. In the U.S. over the last 12 months, they're down about half that amount in Europe. So we're actually seeing migration towards brands that perform in categories where performance drives brand choice to serve me on a daily basis. All right, John, uh, just one last prediction. In our lifetime, will the Bengals win a playoff game? <laughs> You're I not have willing. to believe so, Joe. I, you, that's how you, I get you, out of bed honestly, in the morning. <laughs> when Joe Burrow gets out of the pocket and starts running, do you just go, no, no, no. Do you do that like, like I do? Or, or He's going to be okay, right? I mean, he's like, he, he's he not fragile. He did much better two days ago. <laughs> right. But it, it, don't you hold your breath? I mean, it's like that, that knee that... Uh... All right, John Mueller, thank you. And when it, no, what, November 1st, we're counting down. Is that the day? That's the day. All right, give our best to, to Mr. Taylor uh, as well on, on his exit. And, and next time you're on, I, I think we're going to be using that, that acronym, CEO, right? Not everyone hates you. Thanks, Joe. Okay, you're welcome. CEOs, I mean. We'll see you later. Thank you, John. Joe, speaking as one Zoomer... Not interested in any products that uh, have kale in them. Zero. <laughs> it's cruciferous. It causes gas problems. I've, I've said that in the past. Kale is on the list. Cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, none of them. None of them yeah. good. Yeah. None of them Bad. good. Brussels sprouts are okay. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod to stream or not to stream. AMZ's interim CEO, Matt Blank, says they don't really have a choice, but they're doing just fine. One of the myths about AMC Networks is we don't own any content. In fact, 
We own 6,000 episodes of series content, something close to 1,500 movies, other content around the world, and some very valuable licenses around the world. Off and on screen battles right after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Straight up and Andrew, Kyron, one and two. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Up and Andrew, Q. Streaming services are in an all-out brawl right about now, uh, with Disney and Netflix fighting for who has the most subscribers. Our next guest is focusing on a new strategy of bringing linear television content to the streaming space. Joining us right now to discuss more is AMC Network's interim CEO, Matt Blank. Matt, it's nice to see you. Good morning. How are you, Andrew? It's been a while. It's been, it's been a minute, as the kids say. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, let's let's talk about what's happening in the streaming space, and in particular, what you're trying to do uh, with AMC. We've spent a lot of time, as you know, on this broadcast talking about Netflix and Disney. But where does the the, the linear world fit in the streaming world? Well, look, the, the linear world is certainly, from an AMC standpoint, is still a, a pretty strong business. Uh, we're having a great year. Uh, but we know what the future is. The future is streaming. And uh, frankly, the, the linear world gives us an opportunity to produce a tremendous amount of programming in a revenue-rich environment, well, which will then you know, inform our entry and growth in the streaming business. And uh, you know, as you know, we have, we have been in this business for a short period of time, but feel very strongly about the opportunities for the future. Uh, Matt, I don't, I don't need to tell you because all the headlines say it. Is AMC Networks for sale? That is always the question. How do you think about that, though, in the context of a streaming universe? Well, no. Uh, you know, I, I'm here to do one thing, and that's build shareholder value. And, and we're going to do that in several ways. Uh, we're increasing our, our production of proprietary content. I think one of the, the myths about AMC Networks is that we don't own any content. In fact, we own 6,000 hours of or 6,000 episodes of series content. You know, something close to 1,500 movies, other content around the world, and some very valuable licenses around the world. So, you know, I think we've got to do a better job of telling our, our story to our various publics. And, of course, the most important public is going to be the, the ultimate consumer of our streaming services. How do you think about cost right now when it comes to producing new content, new programming? Obviously, there is an all-out brawl between Netflix and Disney and Apple and others, some of whom seem to be willing in certain cases to effectively overpay for content uh, to get people on their streamers. Yeah, you know, we're not going to do that. Uh, we think we have the ability to play our own game. Uh, people talk about the end of curation. I don't believe that. I, th- I think uh, we, we are curating a wide variety of networks here. For, tar- for a targeted consumer, and we've had the ability to control those costs. Uh, we can't compete on a cost basis with Netflix or HBO Max or Prime. Uh, so we'll continue to do our thing. And, you know, you never know where the next great hit is going to come from. Uh, we've seen that with this amazing show in the past few weeks, Squid Games, that 
you know, where was that show a month ago and, and where did it come from? That could have been AMC. It could have been anybody who found that that amazing uh, culture changing show. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to keep doing that. Do you think that the the market for TV right now is rational? Is it irrational? We just had um, an analyst on from Moffat Nathanson yesterday who was suggesting that actually when you look at Disney and the growth that they were having, that it's going to get harder. It's going to get a lot, lot harder for them to continue to grow and make it harder for Netflix to grow and the like. Yeah, we you know, I think we have an advantage in this situation. Uh, we play the game of the law of small numbers. They're playing in the law of big numbers. Uh, Netflix will report today and they'll say they grew X millions of subs in the corner in the, in the quarter. And tomorrow you'll have all these people on the show saying how everybody is hurting Netflix. They only grew three million subs or they only grew four million, four million subs. We're not playing that game. Uh, we've given some guidance that over the next couple of years, uh, we're going to get to 20 to 25 million subs. Uh, we think we can do that. Uh, and we're going to do it the, the way AMC Networks was built before, choosing great targeted programming for our audiences. Um, you mentioned Squid Games. And one of the details that's come out about Squid Games over the past week is some reporting from Bloomberg um, that, in fact, it appears Netflix was trying to prevent from being published. Some internal metrics suggesting that they value that program at something like nine hundred million dollars in terms of increased value to the to the franchise, to the platform. Do those numbers make sense to you? What, what did you think when you when you saw that? You know, look, in a premium subscription environment, that that's that was the challenge that HBO and Showtime had for 30 years. How do you come up with a number that values what a given show is worth to a network? What was The Sopranos worth to HBO? What was Homeland worth to uh, to Showtime? Uh I'm, I'm not really sure I understand the metrics that Netflix is using, but, uh, you know, it, that's a huge company and, and that's a huge number that has been put out there. Uh, we don't, usually don't see any real numbers of that sort from from Netflix. But, you know, we don't know how many Squid Games to the world of Squid Games, but what will be coming next over a period of time? I can't imagine they don't plan to play that franchise out for years and years and years. Strategically, Matt, in terms of the content library you do have, how much value will you consider extracting by way of sale to other platforms like a Netflix, a Paramount Plus, a Peacock and the like? And how much of it is going to be about protecting, if you will, and creating your own streaming platforms with their own subscribers? I think like others, that, that's that's probably over in terms of distributing uh, to, to those other platforms. We've, we've got to build these AMC resources with our own proprietary programming. And we got to keep that value in-house. And, and that's what we're intending to do going forward. Okay. Matt Blank, it's always good to see you. Thanks for your insight on all of it. In hindsight, I wish I had asked Matt Blank about like the walking dead. You know what I mean? It's how long, how long? No, but my idea was walking dead with a squid game component Interesting. so that the contestants you don't need new contestants because even though they die, they're still, they you know, there they are for the next. I have yet game. to. Have you watched the screen game? I have not seen I it I saw yet. the first episode. And are you hooked? No. You're not? No. I'm going to try the second. I'm going to try the second because I didn't really like the, the first set. My the subtitles? What was the conundrum for you? <sighs> Watch the first episode and you'll okay. see like the I'm last half yet, hour is just people moving forward and just getting... Just, you know, their head getting blown off uh, one by one. Isn't that 
Huh? Needless, needless. Yeah, gratuitous nastiness, okay. gratuitous violence. violence that here. famous yeah. Roman emperor. Right. And that is the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got your own thoughts about Squid Game or this podcast, send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 